Wine, Food, Talk. NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at Napa Broadcasting. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you wanted to immerse yourself in the language or culture of a particular place, you'd get on a plane, go to that place, and just jump in. Now suppose you wanted to immerse yourself in the world of wine. Suppose you wanted to know everything there was to know about it. Where would you begin? That was the question that my guest, Bianca Bosker, asked herself. And in the tradition of great participatory journalists like George Plimpton and Anthony Bourdain, she began a year-and-a-half journey that she now shares with us in her new book, Cork Dork. Bianca Bosker is an award-winning journalist who's written about food, wine, architecture, and technology. She is a former executive tech editor of the Huffington Post, and she's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Original Copies. It is my pleasure to welcome Bianca Bosker here to talk about Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. Bianca, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And wow, what an introduction. Well, it's I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you here. You had been covering food and wine and, and these areas for a long time. What was it that suddenly changed? Why did you suddenly want to totally immerse yourself and really understand so much more about the world of wine? Well, I can tell you that uh, my friends and family uh, also asked that question when I quit my stable job <laughs> and turned to drinking on weekday mornings. Um, but for me, it was you know, something that came completely out of left field. Um, I was still working as a tech editor. I'd been there for five years. Um, and it actually started not with the incredible bottles of wine that leads most people to their epiphanies, uh, wine epiphanies, but really watching YouTube videos of what I can only describe as um, this sommelier competition that was really the Westminster dog show with booze. And that was for me this rabbit hole. You know, I've always been obsessed with other people's obsessions. And these sommeliers just, they put everyone else's passion to shame. And, and as a journalist, I found that completely intriguing. But on a deeper level as a human, I was so just taken by this world that was at the opposite extreme of my own. You know, I was covering tech. It was all about greens. Um, and it hadn't really dawned on me how sterile it was until I came into the contact with this world of sommeliers who believe that beauty and flavor belongs in the same plane as beauty and art or music or poetry. Um, and it became not just about telling their stories, but for me, I wanted to know if I could become one of them. You know, I had never felt my spirit moved by a glass of grape juice. And I wanted to know could I do what they do? Could I feel these stories and a sniff of wine? Um, so I quit my job and got a job as the lowest of the low in the wine world, a cellar rat. And from there, started training to become a sommelier. And did you consider early on that before you went down this rabbit hole, that there was an element of affectation there that might never allow you to get where you had this fantasy you could be? Uh, for sure. <laughs> so there were two things. I mean, one is, um, I have to confess, I quit my job uh, with a whole lot of confidence and very little information. And I quickly discovered that uh, my plan was, was very misguided in the sense that, you know, I thought, here, I, I quit my job and um, I get another one in the wine industry without too much 
fuss or hassle. So it turns out that cork dorks, which uh, is the word that um, it's not just my book title, it's actually um, a term used in restaurants to describe the most passionate, knowledgeable, and obsessed enophiles. Well, it turns out these cork dorks also have a name for people like most of us. We are civilians. We don't know what it's like to really you know, have uh, dedicate our lives to the pursuit of some fleeting chemical reactions in our tongues or in our nasal passages. Um, and so there was an element, you know, while people were initially very happy to answer some questions, I had to prove myself if I wanted to enter this sanctum sanctorum of their underground tasting groups to work beside them in Michelin star restaurants. Um, and so there was that element of, um, you know, the sommelier hazing, really, of, of having to, to get down with them um, and, and get in there, you know, in the cellar, get my hands dirty, uh, have some near-death experiences carrying boxes of wine up ladders. Um, but, you know, I was also very curious from the outset because I did come to this field as a curious outsider to know, well, what was BS and what wasn't? I mean, the wine world has so many traditions. Um, it has so much poetry. And I wanted to throw myself, yes, into the soul of wine, but also the science of it. And, and I just came away with this sense that there is a lot of BS, but when you clear that away, what you're left with are these incredible truths that have, truths that have repercussions far beyond a glass of wine. Uh, wine is just a sort of lens that can give us a different way to understand, you know, the world around us that can teach us, you know, how to savor uh, our most precious memories, you name it. There does seem to be sort of three parts of the whole as you sort of look at this whole thing. One is, as you say, the soul of it, which is in a way kind of all the theoretical knowledge that goes along with it, the scientific part of it, and then the simple tasting part of it, the human interaction part of it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, there's... Um, I will say, you know, most of us have this idea, which dates actually back to Plato and Aristotle, that taste and smell don't matter. They basically decided uh, these were the animalistic senses. Um, they couldn't lead, they were basically, you know, the most basic part of us, uh, in a bad way. I mean, these are like the savage part of man. Um, and we've tended to ignore them, which is really a shame when you think about it. We have five senses, right? I mean, what are we doing uh, ignoring two of them entirely? Um, and what's remarkable that I found is, you know, yes, the training that sommeliers do, which really starts with building up your sense memory, and that's where, you know, licking rocks, uh, smelling the tasting notes for the subway, uh, really you know, putting your nose up and everything around you um, comes in. But you know, more than that, we are, just to begin with, much better smellers than we think we are. We beat some of the, you know, even dogs when it comes to some smells. And more than that, any of us can get better. When I started on this journey, I really had a question of, was I not picking up these nuances because there was something wrong with me? You know, because my genetic code didn't have what it takes to decode these nuances that master perfumers or master sommeliers could? And the answer is, and that I explore in my book, any of us can do it. It just starts with paying attention. And how did you start to learn? After you learned the basics, after you did the cellar rat route, after you started to gather the knowledge, once you started tasting, how did you begin to do that? 
So, first of all, it was um, it started with a decent amount of self-deprivation. <laughs> um, so, my life turned upside down. Um, I gave up perfume, scented laundry detergent, any liquids above a lukewarm temperature. I mean, you know, cold tea, cold soups, um, nothing that could possibly taint or burn my palate. Um, at the recommendation of some psalms, I gave up coffee, gave up extra salt, you know, anything that would throw off, um, any tastes that were too extreme that could potentially throw off my palate. Um, you know, there was also just repetition. Um, I was blind tasting in these underground tasting groups uh, with aspiring master sommeliers several times a week. Um, but yeah, I have to say, there you don't have to quit your day job to appreciate wine. And there are things that any of us can do to begin on that journey. So just as an example, I um, one of my coaches was a master perfumer, and his suggestion was to describe the smell of everything around you in the course of a day. So when you get in the shower in the morning, um, start giving tasting notes. You're not tasting a little bit, but you know, those sort of think about you know, the fanciful descriptors for a glass of wine, right? It's the blackberry notes, the red raspberry, the pomegranate. You can do the same thing with your shampoo in the morning. Um, when you're cooking, you know, take that extra second to smell the parsley or uh, the black pepper before you add it to a dish and say the word in your mind, try and describe the smells of that. And that has incredible payoff when you reapproach a bottle of wine. Did you ever think about, because it's what you had been covering, isn't there a way to bring technology into this somehow to make it easier? <laughs> so there have been efforts. Um, you know, when you look at, um, I actually went to this uh, this lab where there are these um, machines that exist that are almost, um, you know, replacements for the human nose, where they can tease out the different aromatic compounds that exist in the wine. And in some cases, winemakers use them. Even fine winemakers, you know, who are making $150 bottles, use that technology to replicate their competitors' wines. So they essentially process it through, and they get kind of a map of what are the different aromas that are there. Are they you know, lactones that come from oak, are they pyrazines that create that green bell pepper aroma? And they can use these sort of um, machine noses to then try and replicate really high-scoring or successful bottles. Um, but, you know, there is also a lot of technology that's being used on the winemaking side of things. Um, so I was... You know, I think a lot of wine writing is fantastic, but it tends to look at a fairly narrow band of what the wine world, right, the fine wines. Um, and I was curious to look both at the high end and the low end. And so one of the things I did is actually when I was out in California was to go um, and get a rare glimpse at how mass market wines are being engineered from the consumer backwards. So we have this idea of wines being this artisanal beverage, right? It's made with grapes, yeast, and love from this passionate artisan, right? In some cases, that's true. On the other hand, uh, for a lot of the bottles that, you know, under $20, under $40, um, they are made via the, just like you know, a new Doritos flavor where you have consumer groups actually coming in as focus groups to decide, 
you know, maybe a little more blackberry this season, or actually, you know, the, the trend is towards a, a darker purple wine. And there are over 60 additives that winemakers can use to manipulate the color, consistency, taste, flavor, smell, you name it, of a bottle of wine. Um, and that is, it's a controversial thing, and it's also something that a lot of winemakers don't choose to discuss. They don't have to disclose it. Um, but it exists. So, you know, if you, it's not just, uh, wine can be a little bit more of a, a mad science beverage than we give it credit for. Did it change your relationship to food and the way you tasted things other than wine? Yes. So for sure. I mean, I, I think that the, um, you know, to me, this journey started with a glass of wine, or more precisely, in my case, it started with watching YouTube videos of other people enjoying a glass of wine. Um, but this idea of tuning into our senses was something that I found had repercussions far beyond it. So I think a lot of us tend to settle for secondhand sensing, right? We go to a restaurant, we buy a you know single origin coffee bar, a chocolate bar, um, and because we've paid a lot of money or because the menu description was great, we consider it delicious. But instead of just trying to f- find food that tastes better, I think there's a lot to be gained by teaching ourselves to taste well. Um, and for me, this process of learning to blind taste, it requires you to not just hone your physical senses, but it's a deeply mental act as well. And I think, you know, when you were sitting there and you're, you know, I was, had to take this exam, right, to pass this certified sommelier exam, and you're sitting there, it's you and a glass of wine, and you have just a couple of minutes to figure out where it's from, what it was made from, just based on the taste and smell. And that requires you to shed all your doubts, your, you know, all these things that play to our cognitive biases. Um, and that process, I find it, it helps us to be more honest to our own felt experience. And for me, that's something that I find I take with me, right? If I'm looking at a painting, if I'm hearing a piece of music, uh, it becomes much more about, you know, what is it that I'm actually picking up here? What are my senses telling me? You know, there's this idea of mindfulness that's become so trendy. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of people benefit from that. But I came out of this valuing this other mindset that I would describe as sensefulness. And to me, it's really by tuning into our senses that we learn to make sense of the world around us. And did you find that these ideas were common threads among most of the sommeliers that you came in contact with? The things that I picked up, you know, were certainly informed by the incredible, um, you know, mentors I had. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they obviously coached me on this, on, on, you know, really, what is the mindset that you bring? I had an, a, an incredible mentor who was an inspiring master sommelier um, who coached me to do yoga. I mean, he said, this is the thing that, you know, is going to give you that um, ability to block out the rest of the world when you come to a glass of wine. Um, but I do think that, you know, these are not, I personally haven't, heard other people talk about it in this ways, but I would love to have that conversation. Talk a little bit about the process and how difficult it is really becoming fully knowledgeable about all of this, because some of the things we hear is how difficult, for example, the sommelier exam, the certified exam is that you were talking about before. 
Right. Well, it is, first of all, I have to say, I think that there is, in general, this stereotype that sommeliers are sort of the judgy undertakers of the restaurant world, right? They stalk the floor and pinstripe suits, and they make you feel bad uh, for whatever you're ordering. Um, And what I found is the people I met are proof that what most of us think we know about this world is wrong. Um, Not only is it changing demographically, there's more women, it's younger than it's ever been before, um, but for a beverage that's all about pleasure, it requires a shocking amount of pain. Um, You know, I met you know, they call what they do a blood sport with corkscrews. Uh, they call what they feel for wine a sickness. I met a psalm who divorced his wife so he could spend more time studying. Licking rocks is a very common pastime. Um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, said that he, um, you know, uh, didn't, basically explained that he didn't have uh, a significant other because he could only afford tasting menus uh, for himself. Uh, and not also a significant <laughs> other, and that he certainly wasn't about to lose the tasting menus. So it is, they're really the most masochistic hedonists you've ever met. Um, and, you know, I think that what we, we miss, though, um, is that, yes, there's this, I think that, you know, when you think about movies like Psalm, for example, yeah. we have a little bit of a taste. I mean, that's really just about one element of this exam. But there are these high-stakes competitions. Um, and then there's the incredibly important element, which is how they actually behave on the floor. I mean, what is the job of a sommelier but to provide service to a guest? Um, and I found it completely eye-opening to actually go behind the scenes on the floor of these Michelin star restaurants um, and see how this is not just about taking care of the wine, but a deeply psychological exercise where you have to read the guest and pair them not just with the flavors they want, but with the help them get that emotional experience. And, you know, some of these are reading you and judging you just as much, if not more, than you're judging them and the restaurant. At the end of the whole process, how did it change your relationship to wine? How do you look at wine today? Well, at the beginning, I would say the most I ever got out of a glass of wine was drunk. Um, (laughs) It was a physical experience. It was kind of, you know, a nice accessory to a meal. But now I have a genuine curiosity about wine. I mean, the pleasure that comes from it is emotional. It's intellectual. Um, I have uh, one of my son mentors, um, you know, early on described how uh, wine was like a painting. You know, it's this thing that could really move your soul and make you feel small. And at the outset, that sounded pretty ridiculous. Um, But I have to say that, you know, I've found myself talking about wine in those terms to my friends. And, you know, they may start to roll their eyes the way that I did a bit at the beginning. But again, I think it's, you know, it is about creating this new curiosity in a glass of wine. But for me, it's also been, um, again, a mindset that has helped me pick up on information far beyond a glass of wine. Um, You know, even I live in New York City. New York City... um, I can now sort of smell the different subway stations even before I know what they are. One of the most incredible experiences I had was actually out in California wine country where um, I was coming back from uh, Sacramento heading to uh, San Francisco and um, 
you know, I, I had been told, actually maybe it was in Sonoma, but I was driving back from wine country. I was heading to, um, to San Francisco, and this young winemaker who's blind uh, suggested that the highway was one of the most olfactorally one of the most olfactorally interesting experiences, and that I should roll down the window and just smell the landscape as I drove. And I have to say, you could smell the city coming. You could smell the rhythms of people's lives changing. Um, you know, as the as it got later in the evening, as dinner time rolled around, um, and these are these additional textures and information that exist that. Um, you know, wine can be a window into them, but it, it doesn't end with a glass. Bianca Bosker, the book is Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. Bianca, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to being uh, out in Napa soon. Thank you. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.